Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. We're nearing the end of season one. A full year has almost passed since we began this project, and as far as I know, this isn't stopping anytime soon. There's tens of thousands of albums to pick through and explore, and I can only do so many, so might as well get as many done as I can. And to do that, I've had the most amazing help from quite a number of people. Firstly, Throughline is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the home of the first HD podcast ever, and your one-stop shop for all your entertainment and music-related podcast needs. Every topic under the sun is covered there, and many are top-listened and reviewed across multiple platforms. Trust me, I get the notifications when any of their shows is reviewed, so trust me when I tell you you're in good hands and good company. And one of those podcasts just so happens to be our parent podcast, Audio Judo, your modern source of music discovery. Explaining an album's origins through the lens of the two hosts' top-shelf anecdotes works a thousand times better at finding you new interesting music than your streaming algorithm ever could. Robots don't have hearts yet, but they do, so go give them a listen and find something new for yourself in the process. Now, today, we're covering a band I swear I've heard two songs by. That's not a lie. I've checked. I've listened Listen to two songs by this band ever prior to listening to this album, as far as I know. So let's not waste any more time for you to get to your gasping and booing and, and dunking your phone angrily into that cup of coffee you're nursing. This week, it's the iconic, except for me, I guess, band The Kinks and their 1965 album, The Kink Controversy. Baby, I feel good from the moment I finished hemming and hawing? Now don't get me wrong, You Really Got Me in All Day and All of the Night are certifiable bangers. I've played Guitar Hero, I've sung along, I can bop with the boys, but until recently, I didn't even know that the band that did those songs was even called The Kinks. It's a blind spot, despite their 1500 albums. But then you ask, if those are the two songs that you knew, why not cover that album, their debut? Well, one of the driving forces for albums that I choose for the podcast is whether or not the majority consensus is that they got the respect that they deserve. 
as such, I tend to try to steer away from albums that were a band's most famous, instead searching for albums that, over time, have been marked as underrated or obscure, a few myriad of fans who claim it's their best or most pivotal. Hence choices like Garth Brooks' Rope in the Wind instead of No Fences, or Rush's Power Windows instead of Moving Pictures. Those albums are more universally loved, so finding a new perspective on them to help ingratiate a new set of fans is not necessarily needed. I picked this album then because it isn't talked about as often, and has since been given a reputation as a bit of a transitional album, moving from their more rock-focused raw recordings to something that was starting to gain an aspect of musicality and sophistication that was lacking before. Yet, it still hadn't quite reached the range of full-scale epic construction that their later concept-heavy albums would unveil. It was smarter, but still fun, more interesting, but still digestible, danceable even. Finding this middle ground did allow the album some success, however, charting in the top 10 in the UK, US, and Germany, and being generally critically successful. As far as sales go, however, I haven't a clue. For some reason, those numbers aren't available, and just goes to show how much of a hidden gem this one is. Now, just a quick plug, for an album more on the latter side of that transition, Audio Judo, as a part of our two-week special event, is actually covering Lola versus Power Man and the Money Go Round next week, so check that out soon. Now, if you're not familiar with the kinks, well, you're in good company. I had to dig pretty far to get even an approximate handle on history that I knew not even a little bit. The band was started in North London by the Davies brothers, Ray and Dave. Dave Davies is a pretty rad musician name, all things considered, but that rad-ass name couldn't control the absolute cavalcade of members that the band cycled through over its extensive 30-year career, amassing an astonishing 12 members for what was consistently a four-person band at most times. The only permanent members were the two brothers who started it all, and realistically, the only reason that was the case was because the band just broke up when tensions mounted between them in the late 90s. Over the course of that tumultuous existence, however, boy, were they prolific and influential, taking inspiration themselves from our R&B and rock and roll at first, they slowly picked up more of the music hall sound that Bowie later started with, as well as some folk and country influences. As such, this blending and movement through genres was instrumental to the sound they developed that would later go on to inspire an unknowable number of following artists from the 70s to today and beyond. Over their career, they released an insane 24 studio albums, all but two of them charting in the US. They've sold over 50 million albums worldwide, which is still about one record per 160 people in the world, and carried some of that over into their shows, having performed over 500 shows, which is actually surprisingly low, considering. Also surprisingly, they have never received a Grammy or other major annual award for their music, as far as I can find, but they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990, a full three years before their final album. So that's something. Anyway, I think I've gone on for long enough about the beginnings of this band and the album in general, but I did want to cover a brief warning about some of the content that I'll be talking about in this episode. We don't go too far deep into anything specific, but 
there are elements of conversations about emotional abuse and things like gaslighting and manipulative behavior. So if you struggle with listening to those kinds of topics, I recommend you try out any of our other episodes. We have 22 others to pick from. So please explore our catalog and explore Audio Judo as well. We want to make sure that you are always comfortable listening to our podcast. So we're always going to do our best to make sure we warn you beforehand about what's going on. That section of the story will be relatively brief, but we will mention it from time to time throughout the entire episode. So just bear that in mind going in. But anyway, I think it's time we unleash this beast and figure out what the point of all of this earlier doing was for and talk about this week's album, delving into an interesting exploration of a musical time period I'm not very familiar with, with the kinks, the kink controversy. It's always an interesting time when we get to cover an album that on the surface doesn't feel like it holds a lot of complicated texture or meaning. Part of that is its age. At the time it was released, rock was just starting to get popular, fun music to dance to that had a bit more of an edge to it. This wasn't your mama's rock and roll. No Elvis. This was rock, and it was definitely showing its sea legs at this point. Now, this album came out nearly 60 years ago, a period of time that was wholly different to today. Electric technology was just starting to get popular, and music was still relatively inaccessible. You had to know about the band you wanted to listen to. You had to have heard of them, either on the radio or through a friend. There were no algorithms, no databases of every song that's ever been released. You had to go to the store to buy the music. You had to bring it home. You had to have a record player. If you didn't have one, you had to go back to the store when you should have just bought one in the first place. Absolutely mad times. Now, we're spoiled for choice, and that content overload is driving less and less people to explore, to discover, because there's no good way of weeding through. People are driven by convenience and understandability. If something is more trouble than it's worth, or too obtuse to parse, they'll go for the easier solution. If the hunt for new music is too hard, don't look for new music. If the movie you want to watch is behind a streaming service that you don't own, because that company decided they didn't like another service charging them for you watching their content, you either don't watch it, or you pirate it. And if that relationship you're so unsure about have been waffling on, back and forth between interested and not interested, yes or no, if it seems like a dead end, you can just ghost it. Now, in the time of the kinks, ghosting was not necessarily a coined term. That's not to say it didn't happen, but it wasn't so formalized. And wouldn't you know it, we've transitioned from the preamble of the breakdown into a central stepping stone on our journey to figure out what the hell they were talking about in a mid-60s British rock album that wasn't by the Beatles. How do I do them? These transitions, they're so smooth. What can I say? Now, relationships are a pretty common theme for albums, as we've discussed before. And obviously, many relationships have their problems, their ups and downs, their sickness and health. You can tell the world, I'm in love, one moment, and ask, will this depression last long, in another. And sometimes you can be caught in the middle of a belief that nothing really matters anyway. So what's the point? As we can hear in verse 2 of mid-album song, The World Keeps Going Round. You worry about yourself. You worry about your own 
what's the use of worrying because you'll die alone? Rough. But what exactly does ghosting have to do with this? Well, for one, that's just a part of a larger story, and maybe not even necessarily directly accurate. It didn't make for a good transition, though. But if that's not the main idea, how do we begin to find it? In the past, we've used the first few songs on the album, synopsizing them and finding a common theme. We've also attempted jumping around and looking for repeating lyrics or musical themes. But we have an advantage in looking at this in hindsight. This was a period of time where the vast majority of the names of songs were directly related, if not directly lifted, from the lyrics. In order to get people to buy your music, people had to know the name. To know the name, it had to be obvious, at least for the most part. Now, that's kind of still the case now, but it is because it has persisted for so long that we've gained the ability to depend on its likelihood. So let's look at the song names and see what we find. Song 1, admittedly, immediately makes this hard and totally flies in the face of everything I just said, but such is the nature of theorizing. Milk Cow Blues actually has almost nothing to do with the lyrical content of the song. Almost nothing. We'll come back to this one. After song one, though, we have Ring the Bells, Gotta Get the First Plane Home, and When I See That Girl of Mine. This, to me, sounds a whole lot like a wedding, a desperate return home later on for a holiday, and a general love and adoration for his now wife. I mean, just listen to this chorus. I don't care if the sun don't shine, long as I can see that girl of mine. But wait, what's this right after? I am free till the end of the day, the world keeps going round. There's something coping about these names, something transitory, as if the relationship hit ahead and fell apart, possibly by the lead singer's own actions, to which he either provides consolation or perhaps grows to regret. Finally, the back half, the final stretch of five songs. I'm on an island, where have all the good times gone? It's too late, what's in store for me, and you can't win. That's not good. He feels lonely, questioning, regretful, unsure, and ultimately defeated. This all really seems downhill from the beginning, charting a trajectory that starts out wonderful and in love and ends with the main character admitting defeat in his life in its entirety. Herein lies a beginning problem, however. These are just song titles, entirely devoid of context, of music and lyrics and meaning. We are extrapolating quite a bit of information merely from random selections of lyrics. This may not be about a decaying and ultimately ended relationship at all. This could be about someone madly in love that is then cast away on an island with no hope of escape. They're free after the marriage, the freedom and happiness happiness of love, but time always progresses. The world always moves round until the end of the day, he must work. Only to find himself on an island, too late to save himself, a horrible situation, unsure about the future, but not optimistic. That'd be a wild attempt at a concept album, but with this limited information, totally possible. With incomplete data, it's easy to fall into the glaring pitfalls of assumption and a lack of clarity. That's why you should always double check statistical graphs for this reason. Anyway, what this means is that we need to take a closer look at the songs to fully get a grasp of what's going on and what this could all mean. 
So maybe let's do that. Let's start the track by track already. Why not? We'll start with the hypothesis that the through line of this album is about a failed relationship that sees an individual struggle to cope with the loss and loneliness, ultimately descending into full nihilism. An album that encounters something, some major event that shakes the foundation of what seems to be a fully loving and passionate romance, transforming the joy into broken shards that cut and scrape if any attempt is made to return. And so let's do it. Let's explore with song number one on the album, Milk Cow Blues. Now, blues is often thought of as a genre used by crooners to elucidate their personal or shared hardships, expressing their frustration and countering their depression through emotional, powerfully rendered song. Rarely in a blues song is there a feeling of light, a feeling of happiness. A quick reminder then that Ring the Bells is the song immediately following. How in the world are we getting from here to there without coloring the meaning? I mean, that's the idea. Well, probably not. The beginning of this song very obviously deals with someone at the end of their rope, in the midst of the falling out of a relationship. If you don't believe I'm going, you pack all my things. I'm gone. Even the general tone of this song is a little more hard-edged. The lead singer stretching the limits of the 1960s microphone equipment, his voice straining against those limited parameters. But despite this sentiment, the most curious element of this telling off is how limp and underbaked it feels. The main character here is not so much in a rush to leave, as instead of leaving, he just keeps saying, you don't think I'll leave this time. Yeah, well, you just watch me. The song even ends up being the absolute longest song in the album by a mile, a full minute longer than anything else. This protracted and empty threaded departure is only then underscored by the repeated chorus in the back half. Won't you please? Well, that sun looks good going down. Basically, the character is again beckoning for their partner, soon to be X, to follow through with this threat. Pack my stuff. But then again, it is getting a bit late. And wouldn't it be a shame to be alone at night under that all moon? This is actually kind of glaringly similar to Baby It's Cold Outside, with one of the characters pretending to leave and deciding not to. The really essential piece of information to gain from this song, and specifically this interaction, is that this character is kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> at least from what we've seen. There's quite a bit of manipulative behavior on display here, character traits that point to someone with the capability and possibility of being even so far as emotionally abusive. This will be more 
important later. And also right now, a relatively common trait of emotionally abusive and otherwise abusive partners. Not that I know from experience, this is largely coming from secondhand or thirdhand accounts. So take anything I say on this topic with a grain of salt. But a relatively common trait is this flip-flopping of demeanor between someone controlling and manipulative to someone loving and doting. As a way to soften the blow of their verbal and emotional and otherwise violence, they'll all of a sudden be wonderful. Everything their partner has always wanted. This is one of the things that make it so difficult to escape these situations. There's moments of hope, and as humans, we're largely drawn to that feeling and are very willing to endure pretty substantial trauma for the sake that there's hope it will get better. And so the main character flips back over into that loving phase in Ring the Bells. The Wedding Song. This is that sudden character flip. Now, just for the listener's sake, we're at the point in the story that the conversation on emotionally abusive partners is merely something we'll comment on in passing from here on out. The introduction of it as a defining trait of the character has more to do with setting him up as unsympathetic. So take solace in that we won't tread too far into those waters anymore. But let's talk about this song for a minute. The tone is a lot softer than the first one, mirroring our point about that tonal shift. It's wildly different. The lyrics are bright and cheerful, at least content-wise. Shout out. Tell the world I'm in love. Isn't this wonderful? Aren't we celebrating? If one can forget the feeling portrayed in the first song, don't worry about that. And yes, we should be celebrating technically. But take a listen to the chorus and you determine whether or not this sounds like celebrating to you. Doesn't sound like he's that enthusiastic, does he? Ring out, I feel fine. Now, I wasn't around in the 60s, so I don't really know if the word fine meant something entirely different back then, but right now, that word in a similar sounding context is not used to describe anything of particular note. I thought it was fine. My day was fine. The weather's fine. It's indifferent, not abhorrent, but not fantastic. In a way, this could be a dramatic irony, the character giving the audience information that only we have access to, the other characters of the story oblivious. He's saying, all of the right things, but we understand from this perspective that he doesn't mean any of it. He's merely repairing his image in his partner's view. But the following song makes this whole situation feel incredibly disjointed as we question where he's actually been this whole time, barring some element like a hidden time jump, in Gotta Get the First Plane Home. This song basically suggests that the main character has been away from home for some time and needs to get back, as they've been struggling with feeling loneliness. I'm sick and tired of being alone. There's nothing left for me to do. Now, there's a few things that could be going on here. Version A of the story does actually involve a time jump and version B doesn't. And despite what I said before, version B actually seems like the most unlikely. 
despite it generally being in line with what we've been talking about already. If this character has been away from home this whole time, is it not possible that the main character has actually been cheating on his girl, having left her in the first song and finding solace or comfort or whatever in the arms of another, professing his love either truthfully or bound to a kind of secret lust? Despite these feelings, however, the comfort of home and his true partner, the one he was not so good at departing from, draws him back. Also, in a way, kind of overcompensating in the love department. I love that girl for eternity, which is kind of cute, but in a way over-the-top lovey-dovey way. This version overall seems plausible, but it really ignores that opening few lines. My life's been empty since I left. Version A then analyzes it from this perspective, one of a character being kicked out of the house or having the relationship end because of the decision of his partner or possibly his own decision, like we see in song one, that he ends up regretting. In this version, the main character has been separated from their partner for some time and wants back. So he gets on the flight and heads home and we move into the next song as he sees her again in When I See That Girl of mine. Man, what is it with this guy? Maybe I'm reading the tone weird, but calling his relationship with her fine and then saying when he sees her he sighs feels a little weird. Now I get that sighing in some instances can be considered to be similar to a swoon, a more masculine synonym if you will, but the use of these words connotatively feels a little backwards. Now I will admit that so far this theory seems a bit reaching, and well it is. This album is pretty bare bones meaning that in order to get any consistent meaning, we need to abstract, assume, and refine building off themes that we encounter, and instead absorbing all the information under the knowledge that it has less to do with the actual album, and more to do with how the album can serve as a vehicle for a bigger conversation. Just like how the essays you wrote in high school weren't actually about how the architecture and Jekyll and Hyde referenced their multifaceted identity, but more to do with the concept of a multifarious identity in the first place. The exact thing does doesn't matter as much as the concept being explored. And that concept here is beginning to feel a little creepy. Listen to verse 2 and see if you can't pinpoint the path I'm taking here. I know that she'll be mine, so I'll keep on trying. Given the story thus far, this feels kind of obsessive, almost stalker-like. Now, this read fundamentally reshapes the entire song, redefining lines that seemed innocuous into ones that give off generally pretty creepy vibes. I don't care if the sun don't shine as long as I can see that girl of mine, or how the bridge of the song repeats the line, they can see, a few times at the end. A bit of self-reassurance that makes him feel as though he's justified 
justified in his pursuit. Can't they see she's the girl for me? It's super obvious, right? Even the sigh element we discussed before takes on new timbre from this perspective, now sounding like that longing, unrequited type sigh. You know, <sighs> And something must happen in between this song and the next. Some element of the story that the main character refuses to let the listeners in on. Because though he was just in a bit of stalker behavior a moment ago, now he celebrates that same isolation he despised before in I Am Free. What more can I say? He's free. Now, there's definitely some slyer indications that this is possibly connected to the band as a whole, and a sense of reprieve both at the continued success of the band, as well as a forced moratorium on their American shows due to some onstage presence issues. In a way, banning them from the stage possibly contributed to a bit of rest, preventing them from being swallowed by the assembler mass machine, only convalescing, which is a term that means to recover one's health when society doesn't need me. The rate at which they were putting out albums and touring was unsustainable, having put their debut three albums out in the past two years. But in the context of the story so far, I Am Free seems to be an attempt at masking their pain, masking their loss over some event that has prevented them from returning to the person that they both abused or manipulated or lied to and loved. This really comes into focus in verse 2. Sail with me, my friend. I need someone. It's dark and it could get lonely. This is a subtle hint toward the actual declining mental fitness of the character, a glimpse into a more damaged part of their general state than the rest of the song would claim, especially with the gentle power the song's choruses seem to evoke, and this denial really carries over into the following song, Till the End of the Day. Doesn't it seem a little strange that the singer very specifically chooses to point out that he feels good from morning to night, from the moment I arise till we go to sleep at night? Well, yes, this does imply that consciously he feels fine, great even, the sun soaking into his skin and giving him life and energy. There's a curious element of masking that subconscious. Most people's brains don't effectively just shut off when they sleep. Instead, the brain solidifies connections it's made throughout the day, shortcutting paths and blending information in ways that can incur dreams or nightmares, melded facsimiles of the thoughts that are occupying your brain. While it is almost impossible to tell
tell the true meaning of dreams from their imagery, the general tone can go a long way to exposing our current mental state. So if he's good during the time he's awake, is there a possibility that he's not so good when he's asleep? This is especially considering the fact that he doubles down on his presentation of himself as free here, mimicking the sentiment in the last song in a way that almost sounds like he's trying to convince himself that he's okay. The other curious thing about these lines, however, is the fact that he's not just referencing himself, but we. Who is he talking about here? Is this an element of his subconscious still holding on? A Freudian slip in a way? Or is this an attempt to distance himself? To allow himself closure through saying that he is free, and she is free, and they'll both be alright. I'd venture to say it's likely the second one, as we move into the back half of the album in an effort to give himself some solace, self-soothe, if you will. In song seven, the world keeps going round. This is the beginning of the character's downhill journey. The facade has cracked. He is no longer able to hide behind a delusion that this breakup or otherwise end of the relationship hasn't affected him deeply. The song holds lines like, what's the use in worrying cause you'll die alone. Times will be hard, the rain will fall, and you'll feel mighty low. These are not the sentiments of someone having a grand old time. The character is in a depressive state, not super confident in an upward trajectory in their life, merely content at this point to just kind of exist. The totality of society and the world is much grander than him alone. He sees that. It will just keep going round. There's even a specific line that fights against the inconsequentiality of his existence, instead driving him further deeper by comparing his plight to the end of the world, saying at the beginning of the final chorus, not the normal, the world keeps going round, but instead the altered line, the world keeps going down. This is a much darker overall sentiment and highlights the state the character is in. And if you had any doubts about the general relationship storyline progressing thus far, take a listen to the end of verse 1. You worry when the one you need has found someone new. Ah, right, so it's over over. And following this brief admittance at his declined mental state, a darker spot that still at least held a glimmer of hope that he'd move on, we fall a little further into his feelings of isolation in I'm on an Island. Again, so much 
masking. The song takes on a joking quality to the way the singer's vocal pattern and backing music juxtaposes against the lyrical content. It's like an island song, beach-like and sunny, with the singer taking on a bit of an island drawl, staccato and silly. But the lyrics here are incredibly telling. Since my girl left me behind, she said that I'm not her kind. We've been theorizing that this has all been about a girl, a now ex, but we gain significantly more proof of this concept throughout this song. But beyond that, there's another hint here toward the furthering breakdown of his situation. We talked briefly before about the line from I Am Free that mentions, sail away with me, my friend, a beg to a close individual to help carry them through their then breakup. This reference to sailing carries through to here, a reference to the escape and voyage he attempted to run away from his feelings with, and we can see what happens immediately in the opening lines. Traditionally, in a shipwreck type of situation, a castaway event, anyone on the same boat likely would end up in the same place, barring any untimely demises. However, here, he is alone. No one shipwrecked with him. No one has been helping him. This again points us back to the beginning, the character traits of the protagonist that were designed to make us unsympathetic. If no one backed him following his breakup, what did he do? How far in the wrong is he? Well, in the following song, Where Have All the Good Times Gone, we're not given a lot of encouraging knowledge to work with. This is probably the closest so far that we've approached some level of sympathy for this character. There's no silly instrumentation, no strange vocal pattern to mask the pain the protagonist is feeling. For a brief moment in the beginning, he even approaches the possibility that he is at fault here, wondering if I'd done wrong. The line previously even points to his negative quality, the emotional abuse he utilized, saying that he opened up and shouted and never tried to sing. He was controlling and manipulative and domineering, not loving as he should have been. So the song then sees him call out, trying to figure out how it all spiraled out of control and if there's a way to get back to how it was before. But there's a pervading sense that he still just doesn't get it, starting all the way back as the second verse. Well, we once had an easy ride and always felt the same. No? At least as far as we know, this is likely, if not definitely, not the case. And the curious part is he kind of tells on himself, saying I had everything to gain, not one line later, again pointing to the incredibly selfish approach he had to the relationship. And any and all sympathy that may have grown throughout the song is trashed in the final verse.
guess you need some bringing down and get your feet back on the ground. Now there's a few possible interpretations of this line, from someone helping ground someone who is going through a rough time, or talking someone off the ledge, but what this mostly feels like is a bit of a desire to perform an ego check, to remove someone from their supposed high horse and knock them down a peg or two. This is most likely in reference to his ex, thinking that she played him, manipulated him through the endgame of the relationship, a classic form of gaslighting. And well, she isn't having it, as we move into the first obvious song from a different perspective in It's Too Late. I mean, it has to be. It has to be from the ex's perspective. It's too late now for you to say you're sorry. It's too late now for you to make amends. Obviously, the protagonist has fallen far enough to the point where they tried crawling back, attempting to get back in her good graces, and ultimately return to the relationship through apologies. From what we've seen from him so far, though, it's probably fair to say that she's being incredibly kind in terms of how she is presenting these apologies. She continuously mentions them as seemingly fairly normal apologies, but the last thing we saw from him was a very probable instance of gaslighting. It is an interesting character trait that she's still defending him, covering for him despite all the time that's passed, a likely remnant of the way that she had to handle him at his worst, pretending that everything was okay when it wasn't. But what's most interesting about this song is how we truly solidify that it is indeed from the perspective of her, despite it still being the normal male singer we've had up to this point. The singer's voice. It's buried in the mix, softened and almost strange in a way against the music. For the vast majority of the songs, the vocals and instrumentation are pretty well balanced. Instead, on this song, we get a mix that's buried, softening the tone into that which more resembles a feminine voice. The only other instance of this is the first song, Milk Cow Blues. Take a listen to the comparison. The vocal track is so much further back, covered by everything around it, smothered in a way, much like she probably was. If we then take that first song from her perspective, we gain a defining revelation. Well, not so much a revelation as a confirmation. Now, it's still possible that the protagonist was still the main voice, the person singing the lyrics, but instead, we now hear the protagonist speaking these words directly at his ex, making her feel unwanted and stringing her along. The fact that the song's name is Milk Cow Blues as well points rather derogatively to her, comparing her to a cow for all intents and purposes, a sad cow, a really rather ugly thing to say about someone. So here, she's done. She's ending it. It's too late. You did all of this to me. You can never fix it. And so dejected and rejected finally, the protagonist looks forward one last time in the following song, What's in Store for Me.
what a downer. A deserved one, but one nonetheless. Ultimately, the song is just about him asking what his next move is. If he can't have her, then what's next? What am I going to amount to? Where am I going to end up? Am I damned? Another rare occurrence, he does actually admit to some fault, saying in the end of the first verse that I know I've done wrong. However, it's hard to tell if he's actually grown or learned anything at all, because in verse 2, this line adjusts to instead read, I've done a lot of right, but also done some wrong. He softened the ego blow to himself, the criticism no longer biting because it's buried within the self-proclaimed goodness he embodies. Yet, regardless of his misguided confidence and ego the size of this album's track list, Big, he does continue to deteriorate, becoming obsessed over whether or not he qualifies as a good person, spiraling down to the point where he can't even sleep at night. And it is at this point that the character hits rock bottom in the depressive and, honestly, final part of the album in You Can't Win. Honestly, there's almost nothing I can say about this song that isn't said in the chorus. What more can I say now? What more can I do? He's lost. He's done. He rode his personal destruction all the way to the bottom, had been offered multiple opportunities to dust himself off, pick himself back up, and find some kind of path to redemption, but instead doubled down on his decisions, his manipulative behavior, and his, well, general assholery. And with this incredibly dark note, we've reached the end of the album. Our first true downer. The lesson here is not in growth, not in change or self-discovery, not in finding a way to be better or bring others or yourself joy, not discovering purpose in helping others find theirs. No, this is a cautionary tale, an exploration of an all-too-common type of person who believes that the world is theirs to mold to their will, take advantage of any situation they experience, and believe that their decisions ultimately will never face any worthwhile consequences. Their happiness is more important than anyone else's. This album takes that then to its logical conclusion, where we learn that living this way, living for yourself and no one else, has the chance to bury you should you refuse to change. And honestly, if you're like this, if you control people, if you manipulate, take, and never give, if you believe your actions have no consequences, then you deserve this fate. So in a twist on our normal end, I'll leave you with this, the final moral of the kink controversy. Don't be like this. Or else.
Hey everyone, as you could probably tell because of the lack of the stinger at the end of the episode, we don't really have a second half to this episode. There's not a whole lot more to say about this album. The Kinks, as far as I could tell, didn't really do many interviews at this time, and there aren't a lot of album reviews to look at for this album in particular, most of the time covering some of their later work or their earlier albums. This was a transitional period after all, and kind of a hidden gem as I talked about before. Most of the conversation had to do with the sound of the album and the influences that it had and generally the rollicking good time that it presented itself to be at the time. Obviously, none of this theory for this album is necessarily or likely true, but it was a fun exploration of themes that we don't typically get to cover on the podcast because a lot of albums try to present a story that is a lot brighter, has some meaning that builds to something similar to change, some grand exit some meaning. And exploring this album from a cautionary tale was a fun experiment. Generally, I want to try and find something new to discover in each album that we cover, and hopefully we'll be able to find more albums like this going forward that don't necessarily end off in the best of ways. Not everything has a happy ending, and so it's important to explore those things that present the dark, sad, or depressive ones as well, and see what things those ones can grant us as well. But with that, I want to implore you to check Check out this album and see what you gain from it yourself and have fun with it. It is a fun album, especially for the time period that it came out in. I was pleasantly surprised, despite the songs being relatively similar or repetitive throughout. There was some good musicality to it, and there's just some fun lyrical and sing-along content. There's a lot to pick from on this album, too. 12 songs in 30 minutes is fast. But after you're done exploring the album, tell us about it. Comment on, on all of our social media. You can find us at aj 3 I think almost everywhere and tell us what you like tell us what you don't like tell us what you think we could be doing better and give us suggestions for more stuff you want to see us cover in the future this only exists because of people like you listening to it and so we want to keep it going and as a result we need your engagement so like us wherever you can comment wherever you can follow and subscribe or whatever wherever you can and tell your friends we want this to grow as big as it possibly can and I want to keep doing this for as long as I possibly can so with that I want to wrap up this week week's episode of Throughline covering the kinks, the kink controversy, an interesting exploration of the movement between their sounds. And if you're more curious about the kinks, Audio Judo is actually covering another kinks album next week, Lola vs. Power Men and The Money Go Around Part 1, one of their early concept albums, and one that has one of their biggest songs of all time on it, Lola. It's going to be slightly different from what we normally do here, but you're going to get a lot more history in the band and a lot more history about how the album was actually made rather than my crazy theories. But with that, I wanted to thank you all so much for spending time with me on this episode, and I hope you check out our episodes in the past and our episodes going forward. But until then, I'll leave you with this. You are a sum of the way that you treat other people. So make it positive. Thank you so much for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.